because one of the things that I was adamant about was that my relationship with my ex was not going to be something that my children paid for. I wanted to make sure that in divorce, our relationship was healthier in a divorce state than it was in a married state so that our kids never had to feel um, that they were regret the fact that their parents were divorced and that they always would say, yes, life is better now. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world with the power of human connection. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today's guest is Julia Freeland. Julia is a passionate educator and change engineer who has spent most of her life working to help people break through limiting beliefs and seemingly impenetrable barriers to become better versions of themselves. She's gone through two master's degrees, six career reinventions, and 10 years as a full-time mom. Basically, Julia is an expert at understanding what it takes to evolve and realize a better future in any situation. She's also the author of Take Your Shoes Off First, a parable book with a message near and dear to my heart, perspective-taking. Julia and I discussed that weird head nod that teenage boys do and why it might be more important than you think, the role of language in human connection, how to become undisruptible in your life and career, why today's world is more like open sea swimming than laps in a pool, the one question that triggers empathy in any conversation, and maybe most important of all, how to get your kids to eat vegetables. And of course, Julia shares her story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. And let me just tell you, I've heard about a hundred of these in five seasons of this show, and this one floored me. Head to revolveu.com, that's R-E-V-O-L-V-E-Y-O-U, revolveu.com for all the ways to connect with Julia, including her wonderful book, Take Your Shoes Off First, and her podcast, on which I was recently a guest. Links to everything in the show notes, including a direct link to my episode on her podcast. And now, please enjoy this warm, insightful conversation with Julia Freeland. Julia, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Again. I'm super excited. Twice in one, yeah. like uh, basically a month. I'm excited. This is awesome. Yeah. No, uh, we, we talked a few weeks ago on your podcast. We're talking now on mine. And based on when they come out, I have no idea if that will be flipped or reversed or not. But in real time in the actual world here, uh, we just spoke recently about some of my work. Mm -hmm. And now I get to speak to you about some of your work. So this is yeah. this is great. What's uh, what's on your plate right now? Like, what are you working on this week? Oh, well, I'm about to launch what I'm calling a breakthrough booster program. I don't know if you've heard but we're all working virtually and remote a lot. <laughs> I know it's new. Are we? I know. I know this is new information. Um, Thought I was in the Bahamas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unlike how they used to paint that in the tw you know 2019s, 2018s, remote works looks a little different to us all in reality here. So yeah. the result of that though is a lot of people feeling really disconnected from their teams. And they're looking at what's happening with the great resignation. Why are so many people walking away? And it turns out that it's a lack of feeling really 
um, any sense of loyalty or connection and even feeling a lot of frustration and um, not feeling that same sense of fulfillment from work because one, we don't have those tight, lovely connections. We don't have that investment in each other, in each other's lives, which are honestly like, what is it? The Gallup poll showed back in like 2018 that like the number one reason people stay in a company or in a job for a really long time is because they have a best friend. They have a group of people that hold them there. And so right now we're in a situation where we're all virtual. We're only engaging with each other for these momentary blips of time while we're meeting. And that's causing us all to feel like it's distant you know we're not maybe they're seeing each other but they're only talking about business and not actually having that other you know those other layers that build in that create that sense of goodwill and that that room for us to give somebody the benefit of the doubt so i see this as a big problem and my solution or idea is hey why not just do these what i'm calling breakthrough boost booster programs which are like an hour long session that will run a team through a series of activities and exercises all focused on getting to know each other better, on having fun, creating together, laughing, like completely not work-related, so it seems, just having fun and really building those connections. But at the same time, sneaky, sneaky, they will be building um, the eight traits that I've identified as the, that are core and critical to our capacity to thrive in uncertainty um, and be relevant in our future. So that's what I'm launching. That's very exciting. Congratulations. Want to do it with me? Good luck on, on, <laughs> on the launch. <laughs> I, well, I'm such a believer in everything you just said. So many of the programs I've been engaging with, with you know companies over the last couple of years have been, you know, there's been so much less focus on the work work uh, in my workshops and a lot more on the, I I was about to say merely the relationships. And that's kind of the shift that it used to be like, oh, this is like merely the fun thing. Oh yeah, let's do some team building because it's fun and we have some extra money in the budget. But now it's like the most critical thing you could do is the fun non-work stuff Mm -hmm. because there's something interesting you, you said, which is I was talking to somebody just yesterday about this. What we've really lost in virtual is, I don't think what we've actually lost is the ability to connect with people. What I think we've really lost is the space in between the work, Mm -hmm. which is where the connections used to happen. I don't know how much you agree. I think we can really make meaningful connections virtually. You and I have only ever met virtually, maybe only ever will. Mm -hmm. But we need the space between to have those connections. Yeah. I mean, even... Even our formal podcast, we've had these meetings in between and time in between where we just talk, we're just shooting the breeze, trying to figure, you know, connecting and learning about each other's lives on a non-professional level. And that's the place where those, you know, the foundation gets laid for friendships. It's like going out and sharing a beer with somebody. Like the reason why we used to, you know, when I started in the 90s, it was like, you go out and work hard, play hard. Well, the play hard was just as critical as the work hard, because that's where you laid that foundational element that helped you work together better and get through the tough times. And you're right, it's the space that to have that experience that we've lost. And I actually think that I agree with, um, a lot of the stuff that's coming out today, which is, I think we're going to see a huge rise in the number of offsites happening so that we 
mm-hmm. make intentional the the connection points the in it yes you're right we can make really good connections one on one virtually with somebody if the goal of it is to just get to know somebody but how many times do we do that in a work environment that's not necessarily thought of as being a a work um task to do so i think putting intentionality behind getting to know each other behind having fun together it's all important you know my kids are in high school and and their experience of going through two years of virtual school they've lost so much of that capacity to understand another person um, connect with another person empathy building all that stuff I was willing to pay money to have them go to high school for a year and all they do is just connect and just have fun and just relate yeah. and just get through tough problems and solve challenges and laugh together. Like if that's all they did, I would yeah. be like we're they're better for it. You know that that's so interesting. That's I feel like there's the extracurriculars, right? The arts and the sports and all that stuff. I feel like First of all, we all know that, you know, the arts and things are the first things to get cut, which is mm-hmm. which strikes. I think most parents is very silly, even though it somehow that doesn't matter. It always is the first thing that gets cut, even though if you asked, I think nine out of 10 parents would say we don't want that stuff cut like that's important. Yeah. Um, but but also, I feel like there's been such a, a push in the last 10, 20 years, even that the extracurriculars, you got to get them for your resume for college. And it's like what we've forgotten is the reason they're there in the first place is outside of the classes that's where kids connect and goof off and make mistakes and learn how to empathize and realize that they did something wrong and need to apologize for it and discover different cultures and values and and, and how, yeah, do, you, I mean, how do you get people so on board like how do you lead yeah. and how do you organize and yeah all that stuff so hard to do that virtually I, i'm i'm sure you're right you know having Having a toddler, I haven't had the experience. I have a very different experience yes. in the pandemic, but not the experience of having, you know, teenagers get completely removed from their their social their social life because they can do their classes and maybe the classes work, but again, they're not getting the four minutes in between the classes where they're goofing with their friends and popping their friend on the shoulder as they walk by. Even even like just the like the you know that like head nod that teenage boys do that yeah. like head nod that somehow that head nod has. So so much emotional content like within it that like I never realized until the pandemic. And that yeah. right there, just right there, is where I think we need to start having much more conversations intentionally with teams. And that's a part of what I'm pushing out is working go, working with teams to do offsites where we actually talk about what are those informal pieces that used to give you something naturally that you don't have anymore. Let's talk about what you used to get from that informal nod. What was that? What was in that? What, how did it feed you and fill you and make it so that you knew you're like, I'm going to get invited to the party later today. I know it. (laughs) (laughs) And, or, or like, I'm a part of the crew. I belong. If all that disappears, if all that disappears, there's a hole kind of left in us and it's a very critical hole. It's a hole that yeah. is like, it's uh, innate to who we are as human beings. It's hard to verbalize what that is too. And I think Adam Grant got it closest a few months ago and he published that, that 
blog post that went around the world. And I say blog post, it was probably in the New York Times or something, but like he published an article about languishing, that that's, mm. that's the actual term. We now have a term to describe the feeling of this ongoing monotonous, no way out, you know, like it's not terrible. It's not great. We're just kind of in it. And like, you just, you don't feel really motivated, but you're just going to keep doing your thing. I feel like we language is so important. I feel like we, mm. we don't really have a word. Maybe languishing is it, but like to describe that, that, that hole where the stuff, the emotional connection used to be. And maybe if we had words to describe it, it would be easier to, to, to tackle it. Oh, 100%. This is my nemesis actually is a lot of the, the area that I'm trying to dig into uh, it doesn't have language. And so I'm having to try to create what are the new words that resonate. And the, the challenge behind it is, what's a word that I can give you that you'll understand it enough, but you're not going to put it in a box or a category that you're like, oh, yeah, I understand that. And then, and then stop listening to me. Because what I'm trying to do is actually expand people's thinking about what are the skills and the traits and the states of being that are critical for us to be able to thrive in the future? And along the lines of languishing, it's, I actually think one of the things we need to start talking more about also is the opposite of that, which is what helps us get out of that state of languishing? What helps motivate us to take action? And it's a sense of hope. It's, and I think hope is something we need to develop more language around hope so it doesn't become this kind of ethereal faith religious based idea where it's much more we mm. talk about it in a business sense that hope is a critical aspect to us evolving we have to and where i think it becomes difficult is that when you're asking so our our traditional idea of making progress in a business professional setting is that you have a clear vision of where you're going and you and you shoot for it and if anybody isn't on board with your vision then tough tough for them we're still going like that's a part of being a part of this company problem is that the world is changing so rapidly right now and we have so much uncertainty all around us, it's very, very difficult in an uncertain world to have a clear vision of the future, of having a very solid, stable vision. So what I think we need to do is shift into one where we think more about how can we just do micro visions where we're just, I'm just going to make a, a micro vision that at least I'm going to try to get to that step. And I don't know where I'm going necessarily, but at least I've made it a little bit further because that's actually how evolution works. Evolution is a small micro step process. Nobody, no humanoid of the, of the past knew, hey, someday in the future, we're going to space. That's my vision. And, you know, they're like, no, I just want fire. Can I just have a nice cooked meal? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you're, you're right. I, I, I think that we always assume that progress happens in big giant bursts that make great cinema, you know, that make great films. And, and of course, when we make movies about famous people or famous historical things, biopics or, or based on a true story, we tend to, because it's a film, we like to make a big deal out of the, the big things that happened. But most of the things that happen to most people, most people's success 
tent what success however they feel like defining it however you feel like defining it tends to come just one tiny little step at a time there was a there uh one of the last major trips i did pre-pandemic uh was i was giving a a keynote speech in cairns australia which from connecticut is as far as you can fly in the whole world because if you were any further you'd go the other way and it would be shorter so it's four flights 36 hours nonstop. it was insanity left on a monday flew and arrived on a wednesday like missed an entire tuesday never existed because of the way the weird world works and and I got there and I and I was there for to do a 45 minute speech and then I flew back oh so my one goodness. week of my life to give one 45 minute speech. And I got questions from people that were just like, how did you get to a point in your career where somebody, a company was willing to pay what they pay, put you in first class, fly you for seven days to give one 45 minute speech? How did you get there? And I remember trying to figure out how to answer that question. And the only answer I could come up with was one gig at a time like yeah. it was like because because not so long ago i was doing magic tricks at people's backyard barbecues when they were in bathing suits for you know 80 bucks or whatever it was like it wasn't that long ago i was still 10 12 years ago i was still doing that mm-hmm. you know and and so it was like that gig led to a slightly better gig like to a slightly and sometimes they led to slightly worse gigs and then slightly better gigs again and just like you know, there were a few big moments, but it wasn't the big moments that actually made the change. Those were more of a consequence of the small moments that created the actual change. Um, so yeah. it sounds like that's what you're trying to you're trying to pull people into in, in, in these workshops and in your work right now is like small, micro, little changes that can add up to actually figuring out this new hybrid. Yeah, what is this world. Yeah. And I think it's. um I think it's changing our perception about how we move forward. I think there's so many, so much popular culture right now that says, you know, choose, uh, you know, we do visioning exercises, we create vision boards and we, we, we paint this vision of where we want to go to. And sometimes it's great aspirationally, but like the path to get there can be quite spiraling and different and squiggly all over the place. And, but we, we tend to, say that it's going to be some great straight line you're going to just going to make all the decisions that you need to make in order to get there and i think what i'm um what i'm trying to help people do is think more about yes that's a great vision but let's make sure that you aren't so disrupted in your like like when when life comes along and shifts and changes that and makes it so that vision it may not be possible anymore let's make it so you don't get so disrupted that you're actually able to continue to maintain your stability so that you can you're you're on a dynamic foundation one that moves with the change around you as opposed to being on a stable foundation that might crack when suddenly things change and we're in this we're we're going through this world um and we're having foundations crack all over the place and a lot of our our prepare preparation for life has been based on this idea that there's some stable route that we can take to get to success and i just mm. want to get people to start thinking actually maybe that vision you hold on to that big long-term vision a little bit more loosely 
And instead, you just, instead of feeling like you have a spotlight that like shines the entire way forward, let's get comfortable with the fact that you just have a phone flashlight and you can at least see that first step forward and that you know when you get to that next step, you'll be able to see a little bit further forward. Then when you get comfortable with with looking at it, both from like an, an aspirational idea, but like a focus more present in the moment, I'm just trying to make progress today. When those disruptions come along, you're still there with your flashlight going, well, I can't go that one anymore. How about this way? And it, it's, just a, yeah. it's just a nicer way of thinking about how progress is supposed to unfurl. Yeah. I mean, so you hear some people talk about, you know, you want the 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 destination to be clear, like the goal to be clear, but the the path to be open, like be clear in your destination or clear in your goal, but like opening your path. Do Do you also think that the goal itself needs to be flexible, that your big end goal needs to be flexible? Yeah. One hundred. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I help. How I started off doing my own business was um, helping people reinvent their careers. And one of the things I talked to people about is that, hey, that vision that you have in front of you, it may not be what you're actually shooting for. When's the last time you sat down to ask yourself, is that really aligned with who you are as an individual? Is that really what you want or is that what other people have told you you want? I don't think we have that conversation with ourselves enough. Yeah, that's interesting that you can get so stuck in something you you used to want or you've always wanted that you don't realize you've changed and that that thing you want, you're not even it doesn't even you're not even aligned with that thing anymore. Uh, your interests have moved. It, it, it reminds me of uh, what could have been one of the greatest sitcoms of all time that will never be remembered as such now, which is how I met your mother. Mm. Uh, which was prepared for for fans of the show. It was going to go down with Seinfeld and Friends among the greatest, you know, I Love Lucy, the greatest that comes of all time. And they botched the ending and they botched it so bad, kind of like how people think about Game of Thrones, where the ending was so bad, you can't even rewatch the show enjoying it, knowing how bad it ends up. (gasps) And the problem was that the writers of the show, for those who've never seen the show, the writers of the show, when they started the pilot season, they had written the ending. They knew the two characters that were going to end up together and how it was going to happen. And the joy of the show, which was what people loved, was we didn't know that yet, but we, we wanted to see how it got there, that it was being told in, in, in flashbacks um, in the future. And what happened was nobody imagined the show would go nine seasons, would go nine years. Mm-hmm. They thought the show would go two or three seasons and we would build up to that ending we wrote. And what happened is over nine years, characters of a TV show are... They're living, breathing things. They're they're real people in a sense that the audience makes them real. Mm-hmm. And over the course of seasons and seasons of the show, the characters changed in ways that the writers had never originally imagined. But then in the ninth season, the writers just went, we're going to do the ending we wrote 10 years ago. And it Ugh. they did the ending. They just shoved it in. And the characters that ended up together, there's no reason nobody bought that they would ever have ended up together at that point in these characters' stories. And that's that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about that, that you can get so stuck on a goal and not realize that you've changed or the world changed and this goal just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I use the yeah. analogy of open water yeah. swimming. That um, when we're in a swimming pool, it's easy to look down and know that we're tracking, you know, the direction we want to go because there's this line in front of us and we're like, okay, that's taking us to our vision. 
um, which is, you know, the, the wall on the other side. But when we're doing open water swimming, we're, which is kind of the world that we're living in now, there's not, the, there's no lines below for us to follow. So we can look up and we can say, okay, that's the vision I'm shooting for. But if anybody's done open water swimming and you keep going and going, eventually you, you have to keep your head up because every so often you kind of pull a little bit more to the left, you pull a little more to the right, or there's current or wind or whatever, and it completely can move you off from that, that island you were shooting for or whatever it was. And <laughs> you might be freaking out when you get your head up and go like, wait, I was supposed to be way over there. But if you really take a moment, you might look and say, actually, that island looks better. I think I'll go to that one. But we so mm. so rarely take our head up out of the water to see does it make sense for me to still go to that water? Because the forces in the universe are kind of pushing me and telling me that actually this is this island over here is a better one. This vision over here is a better one. Um, I think that's the world we're living in right now. We have a world that, that's wow. putting all kinds of blocks and barriers, throwing wind and currents at us. And wouldn't it be better to be able to lift your head up there and go, instead of freaking out about the fact that you're not making it to that vision, instead you're like, well, all right, where's this thing taking me? Is there anything else that looks good here? Oh, that's good over there. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. This is such a great example of the, the open water swimming. I would have never, I'm not athletic, which anybody who's listening to this can probably even tell from my voice. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I don't even have an ab. I did swim. I knew how to swim. I haven't had to swim in a long time. I assume I still know how to swim. Uh, but that makes sense because exactly, right? When you're when you're doing laps in a pool, you're just staring straight down. You're like, just stay in your lane, right? Stay in your lane. That's our um, old world. I can't world. imagine doing open water swimming. Yeah. yeah. Like our old world is teaching the schools and stuff like that. They're like, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. Guess what? The end of the pool just got exploded. There is no lane left. <laughs> <laughs> There's no lanes. There's the no wall. Pool has expanded. Yeah. Pool's expanded. Yeah. You might yeah. go into a virtual world if you want. There's all kinds yeah. of opportunities and possibilities. Yeah. And unfortunately, our brain is so primed to look for the lane and freak out if we don't see it. So yeah. get to it back of what I'm trying to do is to equip people with the skills, tools, and mindsets to help them understand you can be okay in open water. You don't need that lane. Yeah. I love that. And one of the tools, one of the big mindset shifts that you believe in that you care about so deeply is taking your shoes off first. Yes. Now you wrote a book called Take Your Shoes Off First. That's the title of the book, right? It is. Yes. I've got your book here. I've read your book. We talked about your book a little bit when I was on your podcast. I'd like to talk about your book on my podcast now uh, because Take Your Shoes Off First. What does that mean to you? So the easiest way to get people to grasp onto it is we have a phrase that is very common in our English language, which is the idea that you might be a well-mannered, a well-meaning friend that hears your friend in a situation that you think maybe they're making a little bit of a mistake or they're overstepping their bounds or something. And you're like, well, Brian, take, why don't you take a walk in their shoes? So we make the suggestion to take a walk in their shoes because what we're really trying to do is say like, hey, have a little empathy and understanding for this person. However, I believe that that phrase is incomplete. If we don't first take our shoes off or take our shoes off first, then all we're really doing when we try to walk in somebody else's shoes 
is seeing our imagination of what their world is like as influenced by our beliefs and experiences. And so the tricky part of this, it sounds easy to do it. Just take your shoes off first. I mean, take all your experiences and all your beliefs and put them off to the side. It's hard to do because often we aren't even aware of what those beliefs and experiences are and how they impact what we see, hear, and understand. So we actually have to go through a conscious process of, one, making sure that we're okay, that we feel safe and okay and open, willing to take our shoes off. Then we have to go through this process of opening ourselves up, becoming aware of what are the beliefs I'm holding about this particular idea. For instance, what we're talking about with the virtual stuff is what are the ideas that I think about work? How, how do I feel like I should feel when I'm at work? We don't ever take that moment to go like, oh, actually what I'm missing is I'm missing the, the arm punch or the, you know, the funky nod. We don't think about that because that's so <laughs> intrinsic to our experience and our understanding yeah. and belief. So there's this element of having to help people see what are those beliefs you're holding and how are they influencing what you are expecting to see in the world? Once we identify that, we can put those off to the side, and now we can show up with more of a beginner's mindset and be truly curious about what it is that somebody else is experiencing. Brain science tells us that what we experience will, and, in our, and it will shape what we believe, but it will also shape what we pay attention to, which helps to explain why two people can look at the exact same event or exchange and see radically different things because what you'll pay attention to will be very different and informed based on your experiences. What I pay attention to will be informed based on my experiences. So of course you can get two people really clashing and realizing that maybe the other person thinking the other person is crazy or nuts um, because they can't see the world like you do. Um, But I think there's this, there's this conscious, Um, intentional action we have to take to become aware of how are we showing up into a situation or event or exchange and like especially when there's conflict and and realize that half of that conflict is coming because of what we're showing up with so let's Mm -hmm. make sure and we can't change another person but we can change how we show up And so one of the greatest ways to change how we show up is to get curious about what we're bringing. What are those beliefs? What are those misunderstandings? And so the book, Take Your Shoes Off First, and my podcast both help uncover and reveal what is it that's behind you? What is it behind whoever my guest is? Um, What are those experiences and the beliefs that are shaping what we see and understand? Do you remember the the moment where you discovered the power of having to take your shoes off first? Do you remember the the moment that that happened to you? We talked about there's there's not a lot of big moments in success, but there tend to be big moments when there's, you know, a revelation of a of a system or a discovery or a new insight. Do you remember that moment for you? Oh, yes. Vividly. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, good. I'm I'm sitting back. I can feel a story coming on. <laughs> um so I'm rather stubborn 
And I was rather, I, I like to, I use the analogy, or I use the story of, um, I'm somebody that I feel like life came along, was knocking and tapping and telling me, Julia, you're missing something. Julia, like kind of time to change, time to change. And I just wasn't listening. And so eventually it came along and like gut checked me. And even not even one, one gut check was enough. Like I actually had to go through like three gut checks till I finally like was like, okay, fine. I get it. I'm moving through life completely blind or, you know, I'm, I'm missing something. Um, but one of those gut checks was in the middle of my divorce. Um, I would say we actually hadn't formally decided we were getting divorced, but it was definitely, we were at the end. It was almost there. And we kind of, it was almost, I think we might've even been in this point where like, just for sentimental sake, we decided to actually call it quits on our 13th wedding anniversary, lucky 13. (laughs) And I think it was just a few days before that, like we knew it was going to come and we're laying in bed together and uh, John Gottman has a, do you know John Gottman? Do you know who that is? I don't. So John and Julie Gottman are researchers on marriage and relationship dynamics. And I've written a bunch of books that are just highly recommend amazing um, things to teach you a lot about the dynamics between people and how relationships can get poisoned. Um, he's got a research lab here in in, in uh, Seattle off the Montlake cut. And so one of the exercises that he teaches people is something called the empathy game, which is this process of essentially like learning how to take your shoes off first. Um, But it's a process of listening to somebody until you really understand them and they feel understood. And I decided I was going to try it. I was in bed um, we're laying next to each other in the dark. And I said, Julia, imagine you are your husband's best friend, that he can do no wrong and that anything that comes out of his mouth is going to be, you're going to feel it as deeply as he does, as though it's right. And anything that he says, um, like against somebody else, you're going to believe wholeheartedly in what he says, what his opinion is. And so I asked him, how has it felt to be you? What, what has it seemed like I, how I have treated you? And unbelievably, he actually, in the very dark quiet, he said, like, you've, you know, how he'd been hurt and how my actions, which I thought were innocent, would have even felt abusive and the miscommunications and suddenly I had this I found myself crying crying for him not liking that person that was making him feel like that because I had so successfully taken my emotions my beliefs and my experiences and put them off to the side that I was able to look at that person me as a different person and, what, and, and really see the world from his perspective. And for a, for a brief moment, I was like, oh, wow. I really want to help you help her, help you guys get be together. Like, 
I want to heal that. And I could see what needed to be done, but it was so, it was just this glimpse. And at the time I was so uh, damaged and hurt and the relationship was so poisoned that the window shut. But there was this moment that I wanted to grab onto because I was like, what is that? What was that experience? How do I help people get to that experience? How do I get back to that experience? Because one of the things that I was adamant about was that my relationship with my ex was not going to be something that my children paid for. I wanted to make sure that in divorce, our relationship was healthier in a divorce state than it was in a married state so that our kids never had to feel um, that they would regret the fact that their parents were divorced and that they always would say, yes, life is better now. Um, and so thankfully, that particular experience motivated me to go through a lot of soul searching and do a lot of um, trying to recapture that moment of seeing who I had been and how I had shown up and what I was doing and be really curious about what are the what are the beliefs that I'm holding that are that are artificially shaping the way we engage and knowing that I could only really take care of my side of things I couldn't take care of his um, but I knew also though if I could change myself and how I show up it would be seen and felt by him and eventually here we are like seven years later and we have a we went from a, an absolutely awful just leave it at that relationship um, one that my kids now look and they say no everybody is much happier now and he and I get along and we co-parent so well together it's amazing so um yeah that was that's kind of like the moment and on my gravestone it will be like proudest moment your proudest thing I've ever done is take my relationship from what it was to what it is for the sake of my children so that my kids felt loved and felt like they were in a, a good healthy family is that the question that you would you would ask people to get them uh or to get people to ask themselves to start uh down this road the question of uh you know if i were this person's best friend or if i were the this person's mother or whoever like the person that just loves them unconditionally would believe everything they say would give them all the benefit of the doubt is that like the kind of question you ask somebody to ask themselves or what kind of things would you would you tell somebody to do to start to learn what you call taking your shoes off, what I refer to as perspective taking, which is more the kind of the clinical, you know, uh, I don't know, psychological definition of of, of what it is. Um, how do you get people to start doing it? Because I think we both agree not only of its importance, but that it's it's a skill, which means mm -hmm. this is good news. It's not innate. It's not inbuilt. Nobody is actually born knowing how to do this. It's simply something you can learn hone, develop, practice over time. So how, how do you get people to start doing that? Because it's not an easy thing to do. Simple, but not easy. Yes, exactly. Simple, but hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, when I'm working with people, the very first thing I do is work on that sense of hope and curiosity. Um, it's trying to break people's 
certainty. So a lot of, one of the concepts I talk a lot about is how do, how do we help people unwind their certainty? And often that starts with really core basics, which is just helping calm our fight or flight influence um, instincts and getting us to a place where we feel so confident and at peace with who we are that we're comfortable getting uncomfortable and considering um, things that may have felt um, threatening to us in another another time. But it's like until we can get into that safe place where we're we're like I'm. I'm okay how I am, um, and I'm I'm so at peace that I can be open, and I have I have hope, and I also have intense faith that I believe in. I always say, like I sign all my books, believe in infinite possibilities, and it's that first step is like all I really need you to do. I just need you to believe in infinite possibilities and take that very first step to be willing to be curious. And so the, you know, in any conflict situation, when you're running up against a barrier that just won't go away, if you've got a relationship, you know, conflict, or you're just fighting with your spouse or a partner or something like that, when something just won't go away, stop, just, I call say stop, drop and roll, which is the first chapter in the book. We talk about that. And it's like, stop doing what you're doing, drop what you think, you know, and get curious. That's all I want you to do. Ask a question. Mm-hmm. And one of the most powerful questions is, am I missing something? Great question. Great question. I feel like the answer is always yes. And yet so few of us <laughs> realize that. It's hard when your emotions overwhelm you, especially when you're in the throes of an argument or something that's mm-hmm. you just has got you really riled up or a, a point of view that's so different from yours that you just, you can't even begin to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. Am I missing, am I missing something? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good question. Cause I, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's pretty much always. Yes. It, it has to be. Yes. Because, because you can't actually walk in someone else's shoes, which is why I want to drill down quickly before we move into the end here. And I need to ask you the big question we haven't even gotten to yet of my, the hook of my podcast. If I don't ask it, <laughs> how silly is that? Um, but one of the things that we kind of, I don't know, we we kind of skirted past is that this whole taking your shoes off first, uh, you know, the, the, this. The questions that you you're talking about asking, the point is that when you try to imagine what somebody else is going through. It's an interesting creative exercise. Mm-hmm. It can be helpful, but it's almost always wrong. And we have all the science and all the studies to tell us that we are really bad mind readers, like so bad that it shocks people when I give them the the, the science. Nicol- Nicholas Epley up in Chicago researcher, he's done a lot of this, this research and, and showed, you know, even the people you're closest to in the world, your best friend or your spouse of 40 years or whatever, that you are very, very bad, painfully bad at actually figuring out their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs when it comes down to having to put it on paper and commit to, to it in a study. So the point here is that you don't guess, you ask, right? Mm-hmm. The point 
is that you have to ask them these questions, ask yourself these questions, but most importantly, ask them, let them tell you their perspective. Let them explain what their shoes are, Mm -hmm. right? Let them give you their shoes to put on for yourself and not just imagine what it's like to walk in their shoes, right? Yes, yes, that's a big part of it. It's being aware that my beliefs and experiences are shaping what I hear, what I see, and what I understand. That's kind of the first thing. And then it's figuring out a way to grab all those and put them off to the side and kind of say like, okay, I'm showing up to this conversation with a complete and empty plate. And I'm going to be very curious. I just ask you exactly what you said. What, what, how does this? And it's, it's taking that, it's taking that time to dive a little bit deeper um, so example, just yesterday, um, with my kids at dinner, my son comes out and says, makes this statement. I don't even know how we're on it. And he just makes a statement that says, um, I'm against affirmative action. And my daughter, who is like burgeoning uh, activist, she goes like, ah, you don't know anything. Just, you know, just yells at him. And you can see, and I can see that it's about to, like, turn into this big, huge monster fight. And I was at the beginning, so I kind of calm her down a little bit. And I say, and we had just been talking about the power of emotions to escalate conversation into a battle very quickly and make it so that nobody listens. Nobody hears anything. I'm like, what do we say? Stop, drop, and roll. Roll into curiosity. Okay. So she's like, okay, fine. I'll ask you a question. Why do you not believe in affirmative action? And you can just see everything in her. Every ounce in her is like so hard. And, and, and he says, you know, and he starts to explain how it makes him feel. And she gets upset again. And then I'm like, okay, calm it down. We need to not leave it there. We need to keep asking questions. Like, that's the point. Because it's very likely that maybe you have a piece of information, an experience, a belief that you could share, an understanding that they don't have. But if you react to how their emotions are happening, you'll never have the time or the place to be able to share that information in such a way that they hear it. So... We had to take a moment to back that off and say, like, okay, why does it feel that way to you? And then start kind of unpacking it a little bit and a little bit more. And eventually, at the end of, like, seriously, a very brief conversation, because I was able to keep my daughter calm, my my son completely shifted. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Like, mm. he hears all these arguments, and he's like, wow, well, I still feel like this. However, mm. I agree that it's a good thing, and we need it. And so you start going, well, what's the actual goal of your conversation? Is your actual goal to make somebody feel bad about how they're feeling or to change how they're feeling? You can't really change how they feel, but you can educate them. You can perhaps get to new understanding. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a great example. That's so funny. I'm just imagining that that fight, especially among the younger generation, who's incredibly 
um, right now, you know, kids are just, they're so engaged at a level at a younger age and at a level that we could have never imagined because of the on demand access to the internet and facts and the world and everything else. It's cool on one hand. And on the other hand, I feel like, Oh God, do kids get to play anymore? <laughs> like, like, I don't remember knowing <laughs> that these topics were even topics until I was out of college. I had never right? even considered anything like this until I got into the quote unquote real world. And now like 11 year olds are like debating stuff that are, is important, but I feel like most, well, I was going to say ought to be left to adults, but maybe not. If you see the state of the world, maybe adults shouldn't be dealing with this stuff. Maybe no. kids are the ones that actually solve these problems. They are going to solve <laughs> Somehow. it. It's an, I highly recommend yeah. having a sibling for that child of yours because the conversations <laughs> at my dinner table. I had to. Uh, yeah, that's right. Like the conversations at my dinner table yeah. are unbelievable. Like it's just they blow my mind what these kids talk about today. And it's it's a beautiful thing, really. Yeah, it's amazing. And 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 how how lucky they are to have, you know, uh you actually steering them and teaching that because it's as you and I have discussed before, maybe when maybe a few weeks ago, you know, this isn't taught in schools. Nobody mm -hmm. has Nobody is teaching this stuff. We don't no. learn formally how to connect, how to engage in a meaningful way, how to take on other perspectives, how to understand other perspectives and still disagree because there was a beautiful outcome of your story, which is like somebody changed their mind that rarely actually happens. And that's OK. Like, it's OK that at the end of this, you don't change your mind and they don't change their mind. The point is to come to an understanding. At least if we understand, we can talk about it without getting angry, without, you know, blowing up. Uh, and maybe something something can 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 get done. Well, it's I, also like uh, it's, also, and I could, it's a yeah, little bit also just one last little thing. It's a little bit like, you know, feeding that toddler the green bean over and over again. Like every single conversation yeah. we have that opens our mind up a little bit, maybe you haven't changed their mind about that green bean, but hey, they've been exposed to it and understand that green bean a little bit more. And then a little bit more and a little bit more. It's a new perspective that's coming in. You're like, oh, wow, Uncle George likes it. Uncle Sam likes it. Uh, you know, <laughs> Auntie Susie likes it. Like, hmm. Maybe this green bean's okay. Interesting. So you start bringing in yeah. other perspectives, and at least you're breaking people from the echo chamber they live in. Yeah, and and to finish, kind of tagging on to that because I love that example that like the green bean or the broccoli or something like that. It's like it's like okay, the first time you spit out the green bean, you spit it out because it was new and different, and you didn't know what it was. But at least we know after the 40th time, you actually don't like it. And that's exactly. why you're spitting it out. Yeah. <laughs> We've at least given you a chance to make up your mind mm -hmm. on whether you really now you understand the thing enough to decide if you don't like it or not. But but the initial reaction is a bad time to decide whether you actually like something yeah. or not or agree with it or don't. Yeah. Um, so that's that's so fascinating. We, we've talked so much today about uh, relationships and, and all this stuff, but. But what we haven't talked about yet is we've we've talked so much about the people you already know, the people you work with a lot, the people that are your family, your spouses, things like that, kids. But there's this whole other world, which is strangers, people you bump into that maybe you never see again. Maybe you do. Um, 
you know the conceit of this show is the chance encounter. I'm fascinated with the in, the random interactions that we've been missing a lot in the last couple of years. We've had to be a lot more intentional to meet new people and have collisions in the world. Yeah, and it's 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 almost exhausting how few new people we meet now. I feel like so many people did who people who didn't think they were people people realized they were more people people than they thought they were yeah. when they couldn't meet people anymore you know what i mean like like oh i i i did like it more than i thought uh i did i miss it yeah. um, so julia do you have a story of a, a really like a chance encounter in your life somebody that you bumped into at some point in your life that that meeting transformed or changed you in a small way or a big way whether you're still in touch with them or not do you have anything Anything really interesting that stands out? I love this question because I'm fascinated with something similar. M- mine is this idea of moments in time that completely, like, they were those branch off points where there's lots of times when you make a decision that changes your, your the course of your life. The ones that I'm fascinated by are the ones where somebody else made a decision that changed the course of your life. And I can yeah, track yeah. back a couple of things to like a couple of situations. One in particular that literally my entire life, my kids, my family, my spouse, everything like it's all comes from that one decision. It's pretty wild. So um, the one that came to mind when I think about it right away was um, a powerful one. So 10 days before my daughter was born, we were told that her heart flowed backwards and she may not survive. Whoa. So when the next she had I gave birth to her to twenty-five people in the room, a team for her, a team for me, a team for like just watching because her condition, her heart condition was so rare. Um when she was in the ICU, uh she was taken from me 30 minutes. We were actually amazed that I was able to hold her at all. Um got to hold her for 30 minutes. She was whisked off to children's hospital and I went to visit her there in the NICU. And while we were there in the NICU, uh, we came across, uh, there was a nurse, like a NICU nurse that was working in there, a guy. And he heard about Amelia's rare condition. And he said, you know, there's this book you might want to read it. It's called Walk on Water. And it's about a heart surgeon in Cleveland and all the amazing things that he's done for different small, tiny patients. I think you should read it. So we went and we got it. And that kicked off a many-year journey. And at... um. Initially, so he was a Cleveland clinic. His name's Dr. Roger Mee. And he was a special specialist in um, the double switch heart surgery, which was very rare. And um, he had stories of even being kidnapped to do it for people in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> He's, Holy cow. And so he had done more of this surgery than any other person in the world. And so we did our best to figure out how to get and connect you know, contact with him. Um, All of the children's hospital specialists here in Seattle, there was a whole board of them 
that recommended that we have Amelia go through two different surgeries, saying that her heart could not possibly be operated on when it was so small. Now, you've imagined this, um, uh, the heart is the size of about a strawberry when it's a baby. So it's about, actually, your heart's about the size of your fist. And so imagine a baby's fist, how small that is. And so they had to do a very complicated surgery of switching the great arteries and creating new veins for, to reroute the blood in a different direction. Um, we sent all of her data off to all her charts off to Dr. Me. And he said, I can do it at three months old. And we sat there for a moment having to play God with our child's life. Where 20 doctors from Seattle Children's Hospital were saying, um, we need to do this other surgery to make it so that she gets bigger and so we can safely operate on her. Now, you had to talk about taking your shoes off first. This is another part of it. What was the motivation of these doctors to make that recommendation? One, it would be a very big deal for them to do a double switch at this hospital. It would be a, a feather in their cap, but it was dangerous because they hadn't actually done any of them. So they wanted to try to band our daughter's heart, put her through two open heart surgeries and make it so that her heart would get bigger, which could, could potentially stunt her growth some, all kinds of stuff. Or we could go to this doctor in Cleveland, sight unseen, never met him, never seen our daughter, and go have this surgery done on our three-month-old. We made the decision to go to Cleveland to turn our backs on the 20 doctors who all actually our, our senior chief heart surgeon was like, we disagree with the decision you're making. Went to Cleveland and my daughter is a thriving 16 year old today with absolutely no outside um, evidence of having a heart issue. She still has heart stuff, like it's going to be something that's in her life. But uh, that surgery was 100% a miracle. And it, it itself, it's a much longer story. But the point of your question really is just, was there a chance encounter that changed your life? <laughs> that was a very powerful chance encounter that truly changed our lives. Incredible. A nurse with a book recommendation. Yep. I'll leave you with this one little bit, How just how chance this was. The guy, Dr. Me, was famous for this particular surgery because it's a combination of an old surgery and a new surgery. The new surgery replaced the old surgery. So most people, most kids that were born called blue babies, where the transposition of the great arteries happens, you just have to do one surgery. And there's a better way of doing it. So you do it with a new surgery. The, oh, so consequently, because that's fairly common, People stopped learning how to do this old surgery. They were just doing the new surgery for this half of the issue. So they take the two surgeries, put them together in order to solve the problem that my daughter had. So a lot of people didn't know how to do the old surgery. Anyways, he was known for doing the most of those across the world. We got there, and two weeks before we got there, he announced his retirement. My daughter was the last double switch he ever did. Oh, jeez. That's so insane. <laughs> wow. Yes. That's so insane. 
And now she vehemently believes in affirmative action. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Now she's going to be an activist for sure. (laughs) How how will this little girl who got saved change the world? (laughs) Yeah. So wild. Thank you for sharing that. What did that's, probably one of the most nuts stories in five seasons of asking that question that's that's totally wild thank you for for sharing that um i could talk to you forever we have so much in common uh so many threads and things that we uh we have in common let me i'm going to ask you one more quick question before i do uh where do you want people to find you where should they apart from your book which will be in the show notes of course uh where do you want people to connect with you oh revolveview.com that's the name of my website and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, but I really prefer not to be on the social media. I'm not a fan. So um, I do it because I have cool. to. So my website is the best <laughs> way to get to me. Great. Fantastic. Uh, so last question is a very quick question. The, the, the most of the people listening to this show are young professionals, 22 to 35. They're, in the early stage of their career, they're trying to figuring, you know, figure things out and build something sustainable in an increasingly unpredictable world. Uh, do you have one piece of advice for somebody like that who's trying to build something meaningful, sustainable in a world that feels like it's falling apart from every angle? Hmm. Believe in infinite possibilities. Don't lose hope. There's so much to be hopeful for. Um, be careful of what you let into your brain. All that social media, the way I, the reason why I like staying away from it is because I can feel the physical effects on it draining me of my sense of hope. And yet, if I go out and I watch people and how they engage and interact, it's like that movie Love Actually. Like, why do we love that movie so much? At the end of it, when you see all these people hugging at the airport, because that's humankind. Humans are kind, and we are hopeful, and we are creative. And truly, when we come together as a community, anything is possible. That's a perfect place to end. Julia, I can't thank you enough for this conversation, for spending some time with me. This was just wonderful, and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to bump into you out there in the the virtual space and maybe maybe one day in the real world because as you know i have family in seattle and i haven't been there in a while and i love seattle very much (laughs) 